Hello and welcome to the Giddy Carousel of Pop, a podcast all about Britain's brightest pop mag smash hits, which ran from 1978 to 2006. And what we do is take an old issue of the mag, usually from the 1980s, although we may slide a year or two either side of that, and discuss what's on its pages. I'm Simon Galloway, and with me as ever is Mr Gavin Hogg. Howdy doody. And our guest is someone who was involved with Smash It's in some capacity for pretty much its whole lifespan, from writer to editor and managing editor. He went on to oversee the launch of many other titles during the 80s and 90s, including Just 17, Q, Mojo and Empire, to name a few, and in 2003, The Word magazine. He was also a presenter on Whistle Test, the BBC TV music show, and part of the TV presentation team for the Live Aid concert in 1985, when Bob Geldof swore at him live on air in front of of millions of viewers. These days, he's the author of a string of best-selling music books, the latest of which is the Rock and Roll A-Level, and he also co-hosts the Word in Your Ear podcast alongside his former Smash Hits colleague, Mark Allen. We are honoured to welcome on board the giddy carousel of pop, editor of Smash Hits from 1981 to 1983, David Hepworth. Nice to be here. Hold very tight, please. (laughs) Uh, Now, David has chosen the issue of Smash It's that we'll be looking at, which is from the 4th to the 17th of March, 1982, with a very glamorous Martin Fry from ABC gracing the cover, and as ever. If you want to read along with us, you can do just that, thanks to a couple of amazing websites, like Punk Never Happened and Smash It's Remembered. You'll find the direct links to this edition in the show notes and on our website, giddypoppod.home.blog along with Spotify and YouTube playlists that include pretty much all the songs and artists featured in this issue of The Hits. And we'll also post all these links on our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Just search for the Giddy Carousel of Pop or at Giddy Pop Pod. So, David, if we could start off by taking yourself back to March 1982 and um, giving us a little peep behind the curtain of what life was like working on Smash Hits back then. 37 years ago, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. Um, and so if you do the usual calculation, if you if you want to be reminded about how long ago it was, you know, subtract 37 from 1982 and see where that takes you. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's, uh, it, 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 I imagine it'd take you before the... Uh, no, it wouldn't take you before the Second World War, would it? I don't know. But uh, it's a long time ago. Um I was reminded, the, one of the reasons I, I chose this uh, particular issue is that um, it, there was uh, actually a BBC television film crew who made a short film for a Saturday morning kids programme round about the time that we were putting together this issue. And so I, I was looking at a fragment of it the other day and I was reminded of the fact of how the office was actually laid out in that particular time. We were in, uh, we were in Carnaby Street, directly opposite the NME. It used to look daggers at us through the windows. <laughs> and, uh, and we'd previously been in Great Pulteney Street around the corner when I first joined the place in... 1979, I suppose, um, it had just gone from monthly to fortnightly and we were still in kind of two offices borrowed from an advertising agency in Great Pulteney Street. Uh, and so as it started to grow and the magazine, you know, every, every time you put the issue out, it sold more than the one before. So it was clearly growing. You were taking on more staff. You were having an advertising de- department and so forth. So you needed more space and it took us ages to, to get to move around to Carnaby Street. So when we did move around to Carnaby Street, that was a big deal. And I 
took over as editor probably 1981, I think. And uh, one of the first things I did was I, I knocked the walls down between the, the small offices that were in that area. So, you know, the, most of the editorial team would be in one big office at the end there as you went in. And, uh, you know, if I can take you in from the door, from, the, you know. <laughs> from reception. Uh, get, from reception. I, I've, I, I, the same building which I occasionally walk past nowadays, I noticed now got a blue plaque or plaque of some particular colour uh, recording the fact that Don Arden once had his office there, you know, and I thought, boy, the world has changed now that you know, Don Arden now gets blue plaques devoted to him. You know, at the time it was just kind of a thing that people talked about and whispered in corners, you know, Don Arden. But anyway, um, I think we were on the second or third floor as he went in there and there was a reception area and there would be either Philippa or AD on reception. And they had, you know, an old wind-up telephone exchange. You know, really, you know, if you wanted to put a call through to somebody, you had to, you had to pull a plug out of one socket and put it in another socket and then you had to wind something to make it ring, you know. <laughs> and so... So many of my reminiscences about this time will be a reminder of just what a vanished world of technology and communications we're dealing with here, uh, with, with this. And so you'd go into the, into the main area of the office and there would be, well, there's me uh, and there was Mark Ellen, who was there as kind of number two at that point. And there was uh, Steve Bush, who was the art director, there was Kimberly Leston, who worked on the art staff. There was David Bostock, who worked on the art staff. The great guiding spirit of Smash Hits from the beginning was Bev Hillier. And Bev Hillier uh, uh, was actually Nick Logan's sister-in-law. And Nick had started the magazine and he had a sister-in-law. She was 19 or something like this. And she'd worked in the tax office and wanted to do something more interesting than that. And so he said, all right, you come to Smash Hits and you you be the one that transcribes the song lyrics, you know, which is a big, big task. So she stayed there doing that. And then she, you know, that people who remember the uh, the disco column in Smash Hits, because don't forget Smash Hits was launched at the high point of disco fever. Uh, she was boogieing Bev, who would tell you about her adventures at the kind of at Crocs in Raylene in Essex or whatever, <laughs> or the Crazy Daisy, wherever the Crazy Daisy was. Uh, and so she still did, did that, and I still see Bev to this day. Uh, and uh, and then there was Neil Tennant, who who joined not that long before, really, to um, edit the Smash Hits yearbook. And then there was Dave Rimmer, who was kind of freelance, but but he would be in there a certain amount of the time, particularly helping Neil do bits, I think, on Rise. Oh, I know he did that a bit later on. Um, and then there was Ian Birch. So, yeah, I think that was that would be roughly the kind of team. It's quite a lot of people, really. Um, but we, we covered absolutely everything between those people, you know. So there was no kind of, you know, I don't expect the listeners particularly – conversant with the, the the way magazines were traditionally put together, but there was no production staff or anything like that on Smash Hits. So everything was done by the same people, you know, and so it was a very, it was a completely hands-on operation at every stage and a very kind of collegiate operation is how it was. Um, you know, often to the... <laughs> 
often to the frustration of the editor. <laughs> Sometimes people felt that everything had to be okayed by everybody. <laughs> Whoever was working on reception had to think that the choice of the five people to be on the badges on the cover were the right five, <laughs> all, that kind of, all that kind of nonsense. But that was the way, you know, that was the way we were. And I look back on it with enormous affection, you know, because the people who worked on it there, and you know, are still friends now, and uh, it's a long time ago, and you know, they feel a great bond with each other because of having worked on the magazine, and also this great warmth that um, you know that the magazine still kind of engenders. You know, my my good friend Barry McElhenney, who's the kind of chief executive of the the the, um, the magazine publishers trade body you know so he spends a lot of his time standing on his hind legs at conferences all over the world and he always says if everything's going wrong just say i once edited a magazine called smash hits did anybody used to read it and you can guarantee anywhere in the world there will be five people or whatever oh yeah (laughs) i did and they they all feel very strongly about their particular era of it you know so that's a great feeling, you know, to to know that you know, they have that kind of um, legacy, which I suppose, you know, your podcast and that, I suppose the resurgence of interest in his measures is uh, is kind of all part of. Fantastic. That's incredible detail. Thank you very much. <laughs> Sorry, probably too much. No, no, no. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, you mentioned that um, there was a TV crew in filming uh, around about this time that you were putting this issue together. And that's part of the, the, the reason why you were drawn to, to picking this issue. But was there anything else that, that kind of drew you to it? Well, I, I suppose I, I just remember it quite clearly, really. Um, you know, it was probably... You know, I was, as I said, I took over editing in 1981 and, uh, and you know, it takes time for an editor to make changes, um, you know, to kind of put their stamp on, on it. It's like, it's like managers taking over football teams, isn't it? Um, it's, it's very similar. Uh, and I think this was one of the first ones where I felt I got my stamp on it, you know. Because the, these issues, this kind of issue was very important to us, you know, because this was what we called, and forgive me for lapsing into, into publishing talk, but, you know, we, we would call these things promotion issues. You know, they would be earmarked four times a year, I think. You know, there would be two in spring together and then two together in autumn. And you would do something special, with those two issues, there would be a poster or, you know, in the early days, there would be flexi discs. <laughs> those extraordinary, those extraordinary things. Uh, and then, you know, at this point, we're starting to spend a little bit more money on it. I mean, although if you look at this issue of Smash Hits compared to later on, it's it's very cheap compared to how it became later on. You know, it's uh, it, most of its pages are in black and white. There's, some, there's obviously some colour. There's some uh, spot colour, as it used to be called, where you could choose, you know, one colour or two colours or whatever. Um, you know, so it's quite it's quite cheap. Um, but um, I was very proud of this because I wanted to get Martin Fry on the cover because we always wanted people like that to do really well. There's a, there's quite a few of the acts of the time that that did this, you know. The Human League is another example, and they, I think the the issue before this before this Martin Fry one has got uh, Heaven Seventeen on the cover, 
And it's all a bit similar. And then the issue after that has got altered images on the cover. And, and the, the thing about all these people was that they, they, kind of, they were all interesting people. They had, if you interviewed them, they had interesting things to say. And they tended to have a sense of humour. Which is a hugely important thing, you know, because you, you know, if you have to deal with people who haven't got a sense of humour, life's really, really hard, you know. <laughs> and so they had interesting things to say. They had a sense of humour, but they also understood that they were pop stars, and they understood that they that they were. It was incumbent upon them to behave like pop stars, you know what I mean, and to provide a kind of ever refreshing stream of novelty and changing faces and changing glamour and so forth. You know, so it was always a lot easier to deal with, um, you know, ABC than it was to deal with Paul Weller. Although Paul Weller's in this issue and Paul Weller was in Smash Hits all the time and Paul Weller, I think, understood the value of Smash Hits. But I wouldn't say Paul Weller ever particularly played the Smash Hits game. Whereas people like Martin Fry... Uh, would do, and uh, and that was a kind of that was a kind of huge thing, you know. So we we did favour people who played the game, just understandably, because that's the way you make your um, magazine more interesting. Because it has to be interesting, you know. It can't just be it's interesting because it's got soft cell in it, and it's got the jam in it, and it's got Sento in it. It's got to be soft cell doing this or the jam doing that. It's got to be plus, you know. It's not just for communities of fans. It's for the general reader as well, you know. So we we always tried to make it lively and provocative and not like what you'd seen before. And, you know, I think we have started to, to succeed. So I suppose that's that's why I chose this particular one. Yeah, it definitely worked for me. Uh, I was glad you chose this one because this was the second one that I ever bought. The first one I'd oh, been. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> I bought the Adamant one that was maybe four or five months before. And I was just starting to dip my toe into the waters of pop music and smash hits at this time. I would have been about just past uh, my 12th birthday. But I think it was the free badge that really hooked me in. Oh, yeah. And, I, you know, I wasn't a big fan of ABC particularly, but it was a nice bright cover and, yeah, it had a badge, so... What wasn't to like, really, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, you see, that's one of the things that is staggering to me when I go back and look at these things is is to be taken back into a world where little things like badges meant so much to Oh, me. they really did. You yeah. know, really, really cheap little things <laughs> uh, were immensely powerful because you didn't have them. You know, or if you did, they cost you money, or you couldn't find them, or whatever. Yeah, it's it's very difficult to to replicate that kind of uh, that kind of feeling nowadays. You know, it's like the flexies. You know, as I mentioned earlier, the flexies, you know, were just ridiculous things, which kind of you know you couldn't listen to really, and you you know they would slide about on your record deck and so forth. But they they. Cause great excitement. <laughs> you had a flexi of squeeze or XTC or whatever. It was great excitement at the time because it was a new record. <laughs> it was extraordinary. On the front of this edition of Smash, it's, uh, like I said, the Martin Fry looking very glamorous, pretending to play a saxophone with, is that some sort of streamer coming out of there? I'm not quite sure. It was, it is. This is a really good picture taken by uh, Sheila Rock. 
who did quite a lot of uh, covers of Smash Hits, and Sheila, lovely person. I haven't seen Sheila for years. Uh, at the time, she was married to Mick Rock. I was going to ask if she was any relation. Yeah, I, I, I think they may have been divorced even at that point. I'm not sure. Yeah, she was she was great, Sheila, and uh, and she was a really good photographer and really good at getting people to do what she wanted them to do, which is a hugely important <laughs> part. Well, it's actually, the single most important part of being a photographer. That's all I've learned about photography. You know, <laughs> is that you know, photographers, the best photographers, are kind of they're bullies. They say, "No, you do that. You're going to stand there. You you, know, you pose like this." You know, um, and uh, yeah, he was her idea to have a it's kind of chiffon scarf, right, coming out of the uh, of the horn of the saxophone as if it's a, as if it's him blowing and it's blowing towards the. Uh, the free badge, and uh, you know he's wearing a kind of gold lame suit, and he made a good cover, nice gold and warm color cover, you know. And the cover, hugely important part. I mean, you know, as the editor, you spent no exaggeration, fifty percent of your time thinking about the cover, who was going to be on it, could you get who you who wanted on it. Could you get them to be photographed by who you wanted them to be photographed by? You know, could you get them to do it in time? Would it turn out well? And would it either fly off the shelves or um, <laughs> occasionally we used to say the, the odd issue was nailed to the shelf. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing could get it. Nothing could get it to sell. Because you used to watch these things immensely closely you know you could tell whether something was selling or whether it wasn't and if it wasn't you felt oh god i've failed in everything you know yeah who, who was guaranteed then to kind of make them fly off the shelves i guess oh well it varied it was a little bit more hit and miss at this point i think later on you got more bankers you know if you go into the era of bros and things like that when I think a lot of things have changed, I think those are bankers, you mm. know. And I, I think there was there was one issue of Smash Hits that sold very nearly a million copies, and I think it was I think it was Kylie and Jason um, at the absolute peak of Kylie and Jason mania. You know what always happened with whoever was the biggest thing in pop music at the time, and obviously it changed all the time. Whoever was the biggest thing you fell out with, you just did. Yeah. Because there was a power struggle. <laughs> you trying to get them to do what you wanted and them trying to say they didn't need you at all, you know. <laughs> so, you know, when I first took over, it was Adamant was the difficult act. And then later on, it was the Human League with a difficult act. And then you move forward, it might be Duran Duran with a, you know, with a difficult act. It moved all the time. It, it's interesting that I was talking to Paul Denoyer about Especially it was a few years ago, and he, he, he said to me that, um, that around about this time, really, he was working on The Enemy, and he said he had very similar people on the covers of The Enemy and Smash Hits. You know, it would be ABC, and, you know, it would be Heaven 17, and it would be the Human League, and, and so forth. And um, it might be quite interesting to go back and look at those side by side. He says, and then what happened was that the enemy decided that they couldn't be doing the same thing that Smash Hits did. And so they took their, some would say, disastrous left turn hmm. into teen suicide and God knows what. It's quite an interesting theory, actually. <laughs> um, because, you know, the, the, the rivalry with, with, with enemy wasn't direct. 
But we had an effect on them because we cut off their source of supply. You know, that there had been a time not that long before when people had started to read the enemy or sounds or whatever at the age of 14. And then Smash Hits comes along and they stop doing that. Hmm. And so they maybe start reading it later, which gives them less time with the, with those people and so forth. And also there was that very touchy thing in those days. People always wanted to say, what's the biggest selling music magazine? Oh, we are. <laughs> oh, we are. You know, And uh, that was always quite an important crown to have. Uh, well, let's get stuck into the uh, to the mag, shall we? So the other artists mentioned on the cover, we've got Paul Weller, Theatre of Hate and Human League, hit songs by Robert Palmer, uh, Gary Newman, Kraftwerk and many more, plus Soft Cell, Tony Basil and the Nolans in colour, no less. <laughs> the Nolans! <laughs> the Nolans, yeah. God, are they, really? Uh, yes. Really? <laughs> they really are. Uh, and straight in with the lyric there, uh, Music for Chameleons by uh, Gary Newman, uh, sort of coming to the end of his... Uh, uh, ride on, on the giddy carousel of pop, I think. Yeah, <laughs> heading towards the dumper, I think. Yeah. Well, he, you know, he was a very, very big deal. You know, my early days of Smash Hits, very, very big deal. Um, the other thing that strikes me is you give over a page the lyrics of uh, Gary Newman because you had to reflect that Gary Newman was a kind of banker, you know, hit maker and so forth. And you give over an entire page to his lyrics and his lyrics only take up about 12 lines or something. <laughs> because they're minimal, as you might expect from Gary Newman, but uh, the rest of it's given over to a picture of him in a kind of, in a trench coat, looking very the third man, I suppose. Yeah, it needs an eye in that trench coat, doesn't it? Yeah. Also, I note the top of his head is lost in shadow, <laughs> which may be something to do with his tonsorial fallout. Uh, of course, yes. Yeah. Which we were not to know at that time that this was be- going to become the burning issue of popular music going forward, wasn't it? You're going to have more and more bold, bold pop stars. Yeah. You just were. Um, and then we get to that Paul Weller feature. <laughs> Gavin, have you got anything you want to uh, Yeah, I just thought it was, a, about that? it was a very interesting um, article, really, because we've talked in previous podcasts about the sort of the educational value of smash hits and how pop fans can learn things and this is an article about my favorite things that paul where paul willer talks us through his favorite author and food and tv programs and heroes etc etc and um there's some big surprises and there's some things that you aren't a surprise at all like you know like george orwell's his favorite author and his favorite record is um by the kinks but what blew my mind and i know talking to you earlier si he talks about falafel in 1982. I mean, but, yeah. who who was talking about falafel in 1982? Well, clearly not you, Gavin. Well, no, I wasn't. I was 12. I, I knew nothing of... Uh... Down in Woking, they were sophisticated. Were they? Know. Oh, I missed out on that. <laughs> I thought this article was, was interesting because it kind of reminds me of the kind of thing you might get in a sort of Saturday broadsheet supplement now, you know, sort of uh, going through what, what things you like. And I think in terms of introducing sort of the younger fans to different music and films that they may have missed out on. Um, I just, yeah, I thought it was a really interesting thing. There's a lot in there for a jam fan to dig into, you know. Well, we always we always did this with anything. You know, you can go, you can do two things with a pop star. <laughs> you can either say, go to them and say, tell me about your new record. 
And the thing about the new record is, and this is amazing, it's always really good. <laughs> it's always the best one ever. It's the best one they've ever made. <laughs> Until the next one comes along, and then they say, no, I was a bit disappointed with the last one, uh, but this one is really good. And there are precious few people who can talk interestingly about the new record. Whereas if you can get people to look at the outside world in any way, that's interesting because it brings more people in. Because if you decide that you're the kind of person who doesn't like Paul Weller and there, there will be people, you're still interested in this because mm. it's, it's a human being's points of view on falafel or George <laughs> Orwell or God knows what. It doesn't matter. Laurel and Hardy. Laurel and Hardy. Yeah. And listen, you know, we, we never, ever, in my experience, said we can't put that in, it smashes. It, it was always, if it's, if it's not what people would normally expect, put it in. Because that's a good thing. You know what I mean? It was always kind of looking out of the world, Smash It was. You know, certainly during those kind of first 10 years and so forth, you know, I think after it has grown and peaked, people get quite defensive. And so you start looking back at what you should do and you start sticking to your knitting. <laughs> and and uh, we weren't doing that at this point. We were just kind of extending the, the range of the thing all the time. Uh, and if a certain amount of things went over people's heads, that didn't matter at all. You know, I used to read The Enemy and Rolling Stone when I was 17, and most of it went over my head. Didn't matter at all. I grabbed onto certain bits of it. and uh, Yeah, you, you take what you need, don't you? You take what you need and you, yeah, if you're curious, you know, you do that. And so we always did this kind of thing. And it was also partly me going, oh, if we're going to get Paul Weller, don't get him to talk about his new album. <laughs> get him to talk about favourite Scottish League Division 2 football teams or something. Yeah. The, the, Anything where we can have some interesting pictures. You know? Yeah, the, the new album gets a passing mention in the, the putting the finishing touches to it. But uh, it, oh, well, did, it did strike me that uh, the, the photo of him, he does look like he's sat on the lab. <laughs> yes, he does, actually. Yeah, He does, rather. <laughs> so what I, was, I was intrigued is that, um, is that when he nominates TV programme, he says Minder, mm. which is obviously was a big deal. But, you know, he says there's not many good programs. And there weren't. You know, <laughs> again, you know, when you read this, to be reminded of how the world's changed, the notion that anybody in 2019 would say there's not much on telly mm. is just ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, and you the know, fact that we, and we only had three TV channels at this point is pre pre Channel Four. Yeah, and uh, I wouldn't wish you know seventies or eighties TV on my worst enemies. <laughs> you know, if you had to sit and watch it, you know, uh, there's no nostalgia for that stuff at all. Um, so it's no, it's interesting to be uh, to be reminded of that. Um, what struck me, um, if we turn the page, and we've got a couple of lyrics and then, then an advert. So we've got um, lyrics for songs by the Jets, and we've got Iron Maiden, and then we've got an advert for Orange Juice. And this is what really <laughs> struck me, is that the real kind of mix of, of artists and, and the genres of music in this mag that are rubbing shoulders with each other. And, and David, you mentioned about the whole blue peatiness of pop of around this time. So what do you mean by that? Well, it's interesting. The orange juice ad is, is kind of an odd thing because it's, um, 
It's it's printed the wrong way, really, you know, because it's it's done landscape, but it's put in a portrait format, and it's also presented as it, it's a kind of supposed to be a cut out and keep orange juice brochure, isn't it? Mm. Cassette <laughs> size, you know, and the idea that anybody would do that, you know, would bother to take it out of there and fold it along their lines, in order to have a, to have a small black and white. Little like a like a membership brochure, isn't it? <laughs> to say that you're one of Orange Juice's people. <laughs> yeah, because it doesn't even come across as an advert, does it? It's uh... no, well, but but uh, I think it may not be insignificant that the guy who was managing Orange Juice at this time was the previous editor of Smash Hits, Ian Kramer. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, so that he may be a, his idea to do it like that. But coming back to the Blue Peter thing. In these times, hundreds, if not thousands, of British teenagers would go to their rooms at night. They would get out their Friends Forever notepaper. They would get out their multicoloured highlighters that they got for Christmas. And they would write, this word may be unfamiliar to many people, they would write, actually longhand, long letters to smash it, which they, they would then fold up, put in envelopes, address, go and get a stamp from the mother, and then take it to the post office and put it in the letter box, in the hope that it would either get printed in the letters pages or would get a response. Now, if you want a major cultural change that has taken place between then and now, that's it. Mm. Because the notion that any 14-year-old nowadays would do that is ridiculous. You know, people would expect to be able to communicate in real time nowadays. That's completely different. And so with this magazine, you're still in the land of deferred gratification. You're still in the 1950s, actually, in in many ways. Life hadn't changed that much. It was an analog world. (laughs) You know, where the magazine was put together by people with pens and typewriters and layouts put together with stick-on spray mount and so forth. And as you walked about the office, large portions of the magazine would stick to the bottom of your feet. (laughs) You know, that's the way it was. It was, you know, it was Blue Peter. It was sticky back plastic. And have you got any old fairy liquid? (laughs) containers <laughs> all, all, it was it was it was the blue peter world that people still lived in and um, i think it's very interesting that it's one of the things that strikes me when i look at it but the going back to the range of people you know in in the magazine we always tried to have the range of people we'd always say oh if there's iron maiden or there's a metal act or that you know yes we're going to have one of those because we don't want to fill the magazine entirely with kind of effete pop stars standing behind hostess trolleys pretending to play synthesizers. <laughs> uh, you know, we want, we want a range of people. We want some older people. We obviously want black people, white people, whatever. Um, and so, you know, so there, there was a kind of, uh, yeah, there was a disposition to do that. Yeah, and it, it is a reminder as well that there was that variety in the charts anyway. It, it still had that variety and not how it became kind of later on in the 80s and, and beyond that. I suppose that's true. 
Yeah, don't get me going on the charts. I can, <laughs> I can ball for Britain or something to what the, what the BBC did to the chart. Mm, we'll leave that kind of worms for another time. Then. Yeah. Uh, let's uh, skip on a couple of pages and we get to uh, one of the full-colour pictures there of Tony Basil, the lyrics for Mickey, which I didn't realise was a, a, a chinny chap song until I was looking at the credits there down at the bottom of the song. Tony Basil. I don't think I, I, don't think I was aware of this, really, at the time that this was going on. You know, I just thought it was a catchy record. And, um, and you know, we did interviews with them and so forth. But the full story of Tony Basil is absolutely amazing. You know, she's 75, 76 now, I think, mm. or something like that. And um, Tony Basil, you know, very distinguished career as a choreographer. Tony Basil is in Robin and the Seven Hoods with Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. Whoa, I didn't know that. If you watch Elvis Presley's Viva Las Vegas, yeah, and uh, where he does the famous dance with Anne Margaret, um, which she choreographed, and when he goes, see the girl with the red dress on, she could do the whatever all night long. The girl with the red dress on is Tony Basil, okay? Moving further forward, when Peter Fonda goes and has a trip in the graveyard in Easy Rider, his girlfriend is Tony Basil. <laughs> when Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson, in my favourite, probably my favourite film, Five Easy Pieces, which you may know, uh, has the famous scene where he's in the diner and he's, he's giving some uh, attitude to the... To the waitress, uh, you know, he says, "I want you to, I want you, you want me to hold the chicken. I want you to hold it between your knees. All this sort of stuff." His girlfriend is Tony Muzzle, <laughs> here, who choreographed the Tammy Show. You know, James Brown, Mick Jagger, all those go-go dancers. Tony Basil, she did absolutely everything. And who has just choreographed the Quentin Tarantino film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Tony Basil. So I'm saying I just wanted to I just wanted to make this point, you know. Wow. That's an extraordinary career, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. <laughs> she also choreographed David Bowie's Diamond Dogs tour in 1974, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. done. I think somebody should write a book. Of, well, I mean, maybe not a book. It maybe ought to be a film series. But, uh, you know, the history of pop through dance. Yeah. Because dance has more to do with it. You know, waste your time talking to musicians. <laughs> it's the dancers is what it's all about, you know. And uh, she's a you know, really interesting figure in that respect. And so I, I don't think she got enough respect. And so I'd like to... I'd like to redress the balance now, that's all. <laughs> we tip our hat to Tony. It's a great video as well, actually. I was, watched it again the other day for Mickey. It's not dated as much as a lot of 80s videos. There's no chain-link fence. There's no slow-motion dubs. <laughs> no. There's none of that kind of stuff. Yeah, there's it's, no clenched Well, that fists. was all a bit later, wasn't it? That's a really interesting point. <laughs> because wasn't it... I think the video was made about a year before the record came out. Something like the, Oh, OK. And, and isn't this about the time... That MTV have launched in the States, but they don't have enough videos because there aren't enough. Yeah. And, uh, and so they're desperately scratching around. And she was the beneficiary of it, I think, because they went around looking, you know, where are the videos? And the videos were in Britain because everybody was shooting cheap video on video, not on film. And they were shooting at the top of the pops or for Saturday morning kids show. Yes. Because you could always get these things shown on Saturday morning kids shows. Yeah. Whereas in America, there was no outlet like that. And so MTV came along, 
having to fill seven days a week, 24 hours a day with like six videos. <laughs> and so they just, they started casting around desperately, which is how, you know, people like a flock of seagulls came to be being in America. Hmm. Because wouldn't have happened any other way. <laughs> yeah. No, I do remember um, the first time I saw them on, on top of the pops. I'd have been uh, about eight years old at the time. My dad came into the living room, took one look at the telly, and he said, who was this then? It's like, a flock of seagulls. Flock of seagulls looks like a seagull shit on his head. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least this is a step forward, you know, because I always used to say your parents used to come. You know, the thing about top of the pops was – what made it exciting was you were watching it in this, on the one telly in your house yeah. with the entire family or with the danger that the entire family would be there mm. at any time, which added enormously to its kind of electricity. And so your dad would come in, would stand at the back of the room, and uh, he would say one of two things. He would say, you call this music? Yeah. And, uh, and um, here I'm going back to the 1960s, I suppose. And the other one he would say was, is that a boy or a girl? <laughs> <laughs> Happy days. Happy days. So let's skip on now to what I like to refer to as the beating heart of Smash Hits, <laughs> and that's bits. So it's the roundup of news, there's competitions, uh, and there's some uh, charts in there. Well, I'll, I'll look at the charts in a moment, there's a couple of things in there that, that caught my eye. But Gavin, you've got a little uh, couple of bits that you picked out. Well, this, this really struck me. I really enjoyed this as a, a short article with the headline, uh, Sarni Side Up. And it says, very silly promotional gimmicks department with their latest kitchen marvel, the GR... II or the GR2 double sandwich maker Sunbeam are offering a free copy of the Strangler's Golden Brown single. <laughs> so when you bought this sandwich, I guess it was like a toasted sandwich yeah, maker, kind of yeah, thing, like I'll, a Breville so, yeah. type thing, yeah. and you'd get a free copy of a Strangler's record. And that just seemed like the strangest <laughs> promotional gimmick to me, you know, this kind of post-punk new wave kind of band with what, in at least in folk consciousness, was a song possibly about heroin, was being used as a promotional giveaway with uh, sandwich makers. Yeah. I'm particularly proud of the uh, the next line in the in the item, which is the payoff. It says, next week, Danish bacon are giving away pig bag LPs <laughs> with every six rashers. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Uh, it's excellent. The design uh, furniture of this page has just struck me. I'm uh, just remembering, you know, Steve Bush, who was the art director, was always trying stuff, and here he 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 got a Dymo tape yeah. machine. You remember those? Yes, things? yes. Well, I, I don't know how you even explain what it is that they did. You know, they a, could a produce, lettering machine. Is a, <laughs> I don't it know. Would, it would produce them on little you know strips of plastic, wouldn't it? Yeah, uh, which you could take off and you could take the adhesive off the back and you could put it on your school book, couldn't you, or something like yeah. that? I suppose. And uh, but every single headline on this page has been done by Steve getting out a Dymo tape machine. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, painstakingly stabbing away with his thumb and uh, until he got it right, <laughs> which is just amazing, really, because there's probably, you know, on your phone right now, there is probably a tiny bit of software that does that. But if you wanted that kind of ex effect then, you had to do it. There were no quick ways. <laughs> no, I never thought of that. It seems obvious now when you say, but, yeah, you actually had to physically make the... Uh... physically had to do absolutely everything. At this point, 1982, there's not a computer in the office 
I should have mentioned, actually, when we talked about earlier, when you said, what was the office like? And the thing I have to keep reminding myself, and Mark and I, when we talk about it, to remind ourselves, it was noisy. <laughs> it, it was noisy because of the clack of typewriters. It was open. Nobody's got headphones on. You know, maybe people are starting to get Walkman, probably only just. So if you wanted to hear a piece of music, everybody would hear it. It would be played on the office record player. It was also smoky because everybody smoked. <laughs> you know, whether you wanted to or not, you smoked. And it was, you know, people talked all the time. It would be one big conversation going on in that room, which is often the, not the most efficient way to get things done, but can be a very creative mm. way to get things done. Whereas if I go to magazine offices now, the first thing that strikes me is the almost church-like silence. And I think the same thing applies to pretty much any office you go into, because it's a load of people sitting there with headphones on going tappity, tappity, tappity sending emails to each other. It's changed the world, that kind of thing. Yeah. Who dominated the office record player then? Uh, the office record player? Probably Neil, actually. Neil, <laughs> Neil Tennant. <laughs> I don't know if Neil did bits at this point. I think he probably did it a bit later. I did, didn't, it might have been Neil. I don't know. He'd always develop a range of alter egos. You know, <laughs> he, he used to be like to be, on bits days, he used to say, you've got to call me Dr. Bits. <laughs> Uh. Dr. Bits and uh, and Dave Rimmo. I'm Dr. Bits. This is my faithful assistant, Mongo. You're <laughs> 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 just full of those kind of... It used to be called Chili Tea. Who's <laughs> Chili? He's got the sandwich shop. <laughs> Pretty much everybody on, on Spaceships mm. had some kind of... Uh, Silly name. It's not Mark Ellen, it's Mark Henry Ellen. Uh, you know, it's not Ian Birch, it's Birchie. Uh, you know, it wasn't David Bostock, it was Scoffer. Uh, you know, everybody had those those kind of names. And those people, the funny thing is when they, when you occasionally get a phone call from these people nowadays, you know, years go by, then your phone rings, and there's this silence, then a voice goes, man... <laughs> That always means it's somebody who used to work on smashes. Because you'll call each other man, even the girls, man, just done entirely satirically. Uh, but, yeah, that was, um, yeah, it's it's funny. Um, Dr. Bits and his faithful assistant, Mongo. Um, well, I think the dinotape headers for for these uh, pieces actually works quite well. It does, yeah. Especially for the Vice Squad piece, which uh, <laughs> obviously we've got um, what we would say now are punk throwbacks, but punk was still very much part of what was going on. Oh, it was. But we think of 1982 as being ABC, Culture Club, Spano Bally, Duran Duran, and we forget that, um, that there's all this crossover with these genres and eras aren't neatly defined, that there's it's kind of all just messy and all happening at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I, that's definitely true. Yeah, yeah. and I think uh, Becky Bondage is still out there now? Yeah, I, I did a bit of research. She's still touring and recording. Rebecca Bond, as she was, and then reinvented herself as Becky Bondage, which is a great punk name, isn't it? It really is. So are you telling me that Becky Bondage, who's presumably in her 60s now, is it's still out there? 
If you go on a website, David, you can see her dates for 2020. Should you wish to go and see a play in live? Yeah. My God. Still going. The Vice Squad reformed in, I think, 2006, 2008. But she was, I think she'd been recording and, and touring all the while through that. She's had a few different bands. But yeah, the Vice Squad are back together. How many of the original members apart from her are in it still? I'm not sure. But yeah, still doing stuff. What we didn't know at the time was that all bands with the exception of about three, <laughs> eventually reform. Yeah. And the three will eventually reform, you know, because they just will. Well, there's a piece on here on the same page just underneath the Vice Squad thing. There's a thing about the skids, and um, and that was about them splitting up. But they're still going again now, Richard Jobson's Are they touring really? again. Yeah. Again, he may be the only original member left, but there is a band called The Skids still touring and doing stuff. So. Well, you see, if you once had a hit... There will always be people somewhere, possibly not numerous, but some people who will pay to see you if you've had a hit. Yeah, absolutely, particularly in the in the eighties. I mean, it applies to people in the fifties and sixties. I think almost. You know yeah, I mean? no, it's probably true. Actually, yeah, it's just you have a brand, and the tragedy of groups is that they spend years trying to shake the brand off, and then realise <laughs> they shouldn't have shook it yeah, off. I want yeah. the brand back. Yeah. <laughs> I want yeah. the brand back. What's the most valuable commodity in a pop group, Gavin? What's the most... Here's a, here's a quiz question. Oh, blimey. Don't do this to me. The most valuable... In a band. The brand? <laughs> the logo? It's the name. Yeah. It's the name. It matters more than anything else. Not. It's not good enough to be able to say, oh, I'm going out to do my, the songs. No. It's got to have the name. So look how many bands are still arguing about the name. <laughs> I was looking at one the other day. The Animals. The first group, one of the first groups I ever saw live in 1964, The Animals. So that's a long time ago. Two members are still arguing about the name. <laughs> Eric Burden and John Steele. <laughs> Isn't that unbelievable? It's crazy. And, and that's going on absolutely everywhere. It's probably going on with the piranhas right now. You know. <laughs> probably going on with Toto Coelho. <laughs> Well, talking of uh, of hits and things, uh, just mo moving on to the next page, we get the Disco Top 40 and also the Independent Singles Top 30 and Independent Albums Top 10. I was just uh, scanning down the Independent Singles Top 30 and uh, let's see, at number 20, uh, we get In God We Trust by the Dead Kennedys. At number 19, this is Your Captain Speaking by Captain Sensible. New entry at number 18, Foster and Allen. <laughs> a pinch of time. This was probably a genuinely independent record. Exactly. So this is um, the original meaning of the independent charts is that it was an in in independent record label. Absolutely. Uh, until it came to mean people with this kind of haircut, because that's that's what it became after. Don't get me going on independent. I hate <laughs> I hate indie and everything it stands for. Mm. So what about the disco charts then? Because you said that that was part of you know, the, the original formation well, of Smash Hits I, I, and things. I, one thing about the disco charts is Steve Bush went a bit mad with spot colour on this particular reproduction of the disco chart, and you cannot read it. It's, it's blue, it, you know, it's kind of turquoise out of pink. And nobody can read that at all. But, you know, disco was a big thing. As I say, when the magazine was launched, you know, the story goes that one of the original titles considered, names considered for it was Disco Fever. Uh, because at the time, 1978, it was John Travolta, it was, you know, 
It was Saturday Night Fever. It was Grease. It was everything. Disco was absolutely everything. And so, you know, that, that stayed in the magazine for quite a while. But it, it probably kind of faded away in terms of reader interest in it, whereas indie kind of grew mm. uh, in, in terms of interest in it. Because, you know, indie is all about, disco is all about whether you like the tune. That's the only thing that matters. People have no loyalty to the artist whatsoever. Indie is the direct opposite. It's entirely about loyalty to the artist and nobody gives a hoot about the tune. It's all about personality. It's all about who do I identify with, who do I like, who do I want to be like. Disco, not like that at all. Yeah, but funny enough, looking at the artists that, that are in both charts, I think you would have probably seen more of the independent ones in Smash It's at that time. You've got Depeche Mode uh, at number one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is very difficult to read as well. But Bauhaus as well, we forget, you know, how popular they were um, oh, yeah, around yeah, yeah, that yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's an ad on the next page for um, a compilation album on Island Records called Rap Yourself Silly, The Genius of Rap. It's just starting to happen. Yeah, again, I suppose this goes back a bit to, uh, we were talking about the blue peterization of pop music then, and, and this is kind of another musical genre of making inroads into the magazine. And it's so it's an advert for um, Island Records. It's six great rapping tracks that you listen, and then there's a special limited edition with a free 12-inch single and it says, uh, when you've listened to The Genius of Rap, put on the 12-inch and wrap yourself silly. So I guess the idea is that you, you'd you be inspired by the six tracks you just listened to and then put some backing tracks yeah. on and rap over. It says at the bottom... It's karaoke. Actually. Yeah, basically, rap karaoke. It says linguistic gymnastics in the comfort of your own home. Island Records were always trying to do things like that. Yeah. Not always successfully. Island Records, probably about the same time, pioneered the idea of the one plus one cassette. Do you remember oh, that? Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. So if you went and bought the Tom Tom Club cassette, you got – it was two-sided because cassettes were, weren't they? I forget. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. And you could record <laughs> on one side. So one side was blank. Yeah. And the others, you know, it was, it was their way of getting around uh, – do you remember the golden days when home taping was killing music? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> bring those back. <laughs> the BPI would have those back in a heartbeat. Uh, well, shall we have a look at the cover star then? So we've got the feature on ABC. The Code of Gentlemen is the headline, uh, written by Mark Ellen. One thing that I noticed in the piece, a little quote here, Messrs Fry and Singleton tend towards bouts of fantasy with an enthusiasm that makes even Julian Cope seem level-headed. So that's kind of like, uh, I guess Julian Cope was held up of some sort of figure of, of uh, pop insanity at the time. <laughs> well, not so much insanity, it was just, it was the first cover I ever did as editor of Smash Hits hmm. uh, had Julian, Julian Cope on it. And um, I remember the headline, Bless His Cotton Socks is in the news. <laughs> so I, was, I was always rather tickled with it, really. I thought that was quite good. First time I'd, I'd ever as editor say, no, I'm going to write this headline. Nobody else is going to rewrite it, you know. Yeah, he was he was just one of those guys who always had something to say. Yeah. It wasn't insanity at that, at that point. <laughs> that came later, uh, maybe. I think I think possibly that came later, you know. He was still <laughs> relatively on the rails uh, at that point. Yeah. 
Uh, well, ABC, for me, they were a hometown band. I'm from Sheffield. And uh, it would have been around this time that the Human League had been massively popular in, in the months leading up to this. And I was just starting to get this awareness that pop bands actually came from somewhere. <laughs> um, it hadn't occurred to me before. Um, so it had the Human League and then ABC came along as well. And I ask around Sheffield and people of a certain era will always have a story about one of the bands uh, that was knocking around at the time. But ABC had started out as as kind of quite a quite heavy synth band and then transformed themselves into this very glossy pop band and hugely, hugely ambitious, which is, I think, one of the things that, that comes across um, in this piece as well. Well, it also, you know, were transformed by Trevor Horn, weren't they? Mm. <laughs> Trevor Horn is a genuinely fascinating person, you know, who kind of heard, heard their demos of uh, of these songs and said, well, you, these are fine, or we can do them properly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and effectively went in and painstakingly did them properly. They're unbelievably polished records. They don't have the sound of coming from anybody's bedroom, you know what I mean? They don't they don't have the sound of Sheffield. No, not at all. Coming through them. They're the sound of, you know, Labrook Grove, um, you know, of Psalm Studios. Or they're increasingly the sound of and I think this is the one one of the ways one of the things that was starting to happen happen in pop music is is you get to the point where pop music is increasingly made on, well, eventually made on computers. So where it's made doesn't matter at all, you know, because it's all made in the box. They don't sound like a particular room or a particular location. Um, you know, this is kind of the beginning of that. And you, you were talking about the uh, the videos and how they were a very scarce thing back then. But there's this little quote here uh, where they're talking about pop videos and it says the twosome so that's martin fry and the uh, sax player steve singleton says the twosome are openly scathing about the rut in which most video directors seem to currently be stuck all knights in armor and castles peppered with the odd chariot and loads of statues terribly classical and totally meaningless and he says we've got a great idea for poison arrow uh, martin reveals in full flight of fancy it stretches from war-torn london to a stylized art gallery involving white stallions some hamsters and a few iguanas with diamond chains and studded collars trouble is he reckons we want the iguanas to be a little more street level they'll probably come on wearing cloth caps and carrying pints of bitter <laughs> That sounds to me like a fantasy that Mark Allen provoked them into having. <laughs> it's the kind of thing people say when they're having a drink with Mark Allen. Right. <laughs> and then Mark goes, fine, that sounds like me talking. <laughs> That's what happens. Yeah. I just found it interesting how um, ABC, again, hugely ambitious, and they're already seeing you know, how, to them, how tired all the music videos are, are looking, even though there's not very many of them. No, mm. no, no, absolutely. Well, they were later on, they were going to look more tired, but more expensive, weren't they? That was what was going to happen. Yeah. Gavin, anything that jumps out to, to you from yeah, this? Yeah, I this mean, piece? apart from the fact that they, they seem very focused and um, they've got real laser precision on what they want to achieve, haven't they, and mm. how they're going to do it. But there was a funny, there was a kind of quite an odd quote that, that I found towards the bottom of the first column where they're talking about 
the splinter group that they're um, for, again, again, this may be something to do with Mark Ellen, perhaps. Uh, they they say <laughs> we've decided to form this splinter group of the Democratic Dance Party, and it's called the, it's going to be called the the Code of Gentlemen. Martin Fry says the idea is to uphold standards of decency and moral conduct while everything else crumbles around you. Best behaviour, he advises at all times, and then. It says, uh, and he's not alone in this. Steve Singleton, ABC's affable sax man, is behind him all the way. Recently, Steve claims he was so appalled by the rowdy and reckless conduct of a crowd down the local nightclub that he was later to be found wandering around wearing a sandwich board forged from a couple of ABC posters, freshly scrawled with the message, human dogs, all of you, animals and scavengers. (laughs) Well, frankly, if you're interviewing pop stars, if they say interesting things, you don't bother whether they're true or not. No, it's great. It's great copy, isn't it? Absolutely. You know... I can't remember if I said this already, you know, Mark and I were talking about this only the other day. We talk about it all the time. If you twist the words of a pop star, but you make them sound clever, Mm. they have no problem with that at all. If you faithfully reproduce things that they say that make them sound stupid, they never forgive you for that. So lots of the great quotes that come from pop stars they never quite said. <laughs> they were slowly winkled out of them bit by bit and then reassembled into a catchy phrase. Um, classic example of this, actually, sorry, Charlie Watts is often quoted as saying, first 25 years in the Rolling Stones is five years of playing, 20 years of hanging around. I was interviewing him at the time and I said, so how do you reflect on 25 years? He said, well, it's mainly been hanging around. And I said, so, what would you say, 20 years hanging around? Five years playing? He goes, yeah, five years playing, 20 years hanging around. Fine, quote. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That's how legends are made. <laughs> it rarely comes out, you know. <laughs> you know, when John Lennon said we're more popular than Jesus, he probably never quite said that. Mm. I'm not criticising the the journalist or anything like that. You know. <laughs> Just the way the way it works, because you know the great social duty of music magazines in the days when music magazines sold in huge quantities, you know, a million copies, probably nearly every week, if you totter them all up. In Britain, the great thing that they did was make not always interesting people seem really interesting. Mm. And there's nobody doing that for Ed Sheeran. No, well, he's all, uh, was he, spreadsheets and, uh, yeah, tour management and stuff. <laughs> I'm sure he's a very nice guy. Yeah. <laughs> but there's no legend about Ed Sheeran, is no. there? No. Well, it's, it, I think um, the, the, the pop stars and their interactions with the media uh, are, are managed to the, the nth degree now. Everybody's media trained. Hey, and... Well, I suppose so, but also they've got social media, so they kind of do it themselves. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's up to them to make themselves interesting. Well, shall we stick with Sheffield for our next band? And uh, we get a, let's see how many pages is this, a four-page feature <laughs> of the ascent of the Human League. And it's not just any old feature. It's it's a, a cartoon strip. So, David, do you want to talk us through this one? It's my proudest professional moment here we're talking about. <laughs> People will say, what do, you, what do you look back on with most fondness? I said when Mark Allen and I did the, we do, I think we did it with, Two, probably three times, I think. Yeah. Um, I said, let's just get a 
a cartoonist. Well, not a cartoonist, an illustrator, hmm. a specialist illustrator, to do the story of the Human League as though it were a kind of something out of Mad Magazine. <laughs> you know, and so... We found this guy. I think we probably found him through Neil, Neil Tennant. I think Neil may have known him. Yeah. Because Neil had worked at ITV Books. And uh, we found this guy called Harry North. And Harry North was, you know, at the time I would be like 29, 30. No, slightly older. He was in his 40s, you know, yeah. so he didn't know the Human League were or anything. And he was a guy who had a very nice living. Thank you very much. You know, knocking out strips for probably for Mad Magazine. Uh, and also occasionally uh, being flown to the States to be parked in a bungalow at the Beverly Hills Hotel and sit there for three weeks storyboarding Steven Spielberg films. You know, <laughs> and probably very well paid for it. Yeah. And so when we got him to do this, I think it was probably £800, which was a lot of money. Yeah. But I, I thought, oh, it's a promotion issue. <laughs> It'll be worth it, you know. It'll be worth it to see the look on Phil Oakey's face. <laughs> He sees it you know, because you don't have to ask anybody's permission to do this. You know? <laughs> so we just, you know, we just tell the story of the Human League and, and you know, all the famous stuff that they start off in the kind of rather arty Human League and then they meet, the, see the two girls in the Crazy Daisy in, the, in Sheffield. Was it the Crazy Daisy or something like yeah, that? Yeah, it was the Crazy Daisy, yeah. And then they go on to, to massive chart success. But my favourite bit is the panel on the first spread in, in the top right where it's got uh, Phil attempting to play a saxophone <laughs> while not actually putting <laughs> putting the mouthpiece in his mouth while his father says in kind of really terrible Yorkshire, I think you stick your mouth on the end of your blower, Phil. And, uh, <laughs> but his father, although balding, also has a hank of hair. <laughs> That one side of his face. And if you look further detail in the back, you'll see that the budgie in the cage also has a hank of hair. And, so, and presumably mother, his mother as well. His mother, oh, yes. she does. There are two, three ducks on the wall, and they also have a hank of hair. And the dog. <laughs> I'm sorry. I never noticed I'm that. sorry. That's, that's a good day's work, isn't oh, it? Oh, that's you know? amazing. <laughs> You know, I'm so proud of that. We did it with Shaking Stevens as well. <laughs> <laughs> and in the case of the Human League, it was the answer to the problem. How do you deal with the Human League? Because it was so difficult. God, yeah. they were difficult. <laughs> uh, even though they had the nicest PR in the world, Keith Borton, who was such a nice guy, and really good PR. But God, Phil Oakey was difficult. <laughs> and, uh, and Shaking Stevens was also difficult in a, in a different way. And so it was our answer to the problem. How do you cover them? without having to deal with them, you know, get Harry North, let's do a strip. It'll be hilarious. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still um, I'm still very thrilled about that. Yeah, I mean, it's a, a brilliant kind of caricature style. I think he, <laughs> was it looking that he used to do stuff for, I think? In, oh, in, that's probably, yeah. okay, you'd, well, you'd, you, that would make sense. Right. Because, you know, ITV Books published looking, so that possibly is, uh, there we are. is how Neil came to know the name. Because I didn't, you know, it's interesting, again, you know, to go back to the kind of, you know, the, the handmade nature of the thing. Hmm. Nowadays, if you wanted to find an illustrator, any clown can do it. Yeah. <laughs> go on Google. <laughs> or you ask on social media. In those days, where do you begin? Where do you even start? Hmm. You know, 
And so you had to use the few contacts that you had. And if Neil suggested, oh, there's a guy called Harry North, oh, can you get his number? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll try. <laughs> you know what I mean? A week later, somebody would come through with his number. And you get in touch with him. And, uh, and then you'd have to wait another three weeks before he came to see you or something. Everything was very slow. Yeah. Uh, but, no, it was good work. Yeah. Good work. I like how it makes um, Ian Marsh and Martin Ware in the early lineup of the of the league look like bin men. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a little quote there uh, saying, well, I liked the weird electronic sounds, but it looked like a tramp's convention at a rubbish tip on stage. And it, it, it kind of looks like Steptoe's junkyard with the, yeah, yeah, just yeah, surrounded yeah. by speakers and uh, cables and, and all sorts of things. But, yeah, Ian Marsh and Martin Ware looking uh, every inch the bin man. Yeah. <laughs> it's a nice payoff at the end as well when Phil Oakey says... Uh, and that's not all. With platinum selling records now, I can afford to get both sides of my air cup. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very good. You see, we scripted all this. I think Mark and I sat down there and wrote all these things. <laughs> and they said to Harry, can you do these things? And he did. He did a great job. Great job. I've just realised as well that in, in, in all my excitement that um, we've skipped past the singles and albums reviews. Well, that, real, that would never do. That wouldn't <laughs> do at all. And again, I think with uh, along with bits, uh, these were probably, uh, for me, the two bits that I would always turn to and, and look through first. And in this one, we get the singles reviewed by um, Neil Tennant. Singles reviewing is a funny thing. Have you ever done it? Have you ever done singles reviews? No. I've done a few album reviews, but um, ne- never attempted singles. Singles reviewing is the kind of thing that you always think, God, I'd love to do the singles. God. <laughs> I, used to, I used to read Danny Baker's singles in The Enemy or whatever, and you think, oh, I'd love to have a go. Because you get to have a go at everybody, you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and you don't have to, to do it too long. But once you've done it a few times, you think, God, this is a jaw. <laughs> it's really hard work. It's really hard work. Because you've got to think of something fresh to say about 20 different acts. You know, 20 different reviews. It's just really hard to do. And so that's why, if you want to know why singles reviews, why so many singles reviews were dismissive, <laughs> it's because reviewers were thinking, oh, God, get at this out of me. You know, off my desk, I don't want to have to think about the Boomtown Rats' house on fire, <laughs> which Neil is reviewing here. It's obviously, uh, you know from the Boontown Rats long twirling period down into the dumper. Yeah. Nobody remembers. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and he's obviously quite clever, but no tune, no fun and no hit. You know, <laughs> probably, probably more severe than he intended to be, but that's the way it works. Yeah, I like his uh, little review of um, DAF, Sex Underwater, or Sex Underwasser. Um, it's fine as long as you don't get your snorkels tangled. <laughs> And watch out for sharks. Classic. <laughs> classic smash it. Classic smash it is of dealing with a thing like this by just pretending that it's almost still it's all a bit of a all a bit of a strange thing that adults do, you know what I mean? Smash it's kind of easily embarrassed. Oh, don't talk about things like that, please, you know. It's like your dad telling you the facts of life. Oh, please, God. You know. <laughs> and it's a great single of the fortnight, uh, this time around, the Associates Party Fears too. Which still just sounds incredible now. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, Billy McKenzie sounds like he's a pop star from another galaxy still to this day. He those, does, those, yeah. those songs from, from around that time, yeah. Neil says it's a big, big song and a big, big voice and uh, mysterious and exhilarating. It deserves to be a big hit. And uh, 
Was it? Um, it was big-ish, wasn't it? I don't know if Sai's got his uh, Guinness, Guinness Book of... I've got the Guinness Book of British Hit Singles here, 14th oh, edition. What, before you find the answer, Sai, yeah. let's, uh, let's see out of me and Dave who gets the closest, because I don't know. What, what do you think, Dave? How far do you think it went? The top 20, I would have thought. Yeah, I'm going... I'll say 15. Yeah. I'd, you going I'd, higher or lower? I'll go, I'll go lower. I'll go lower. I don't think it went top 10, so let's, uh, let's no, have a look here. Uh, associates. Oh! They're gone. We're Num- both wrong. Number nine. Yes. Oh, we're both wrong. <laughs> they're, they're only top ten hit. Yeah. Oh, well, go. shows. No, okay. I'm surprised, well, though. You know, I really yeah. didn't think it'd gone that high. Yeah, yeah but yeah, it, yeah. it was their first hit as well. So, yeah. Yeah, there, there was uh, a few, few of you, well, a few, few of these singles. Um, Randy Edelman, Barbara, uh, which is a song all about Barbara Woodhouse by a, an American uh, composer and arranger. <laughs> is it really? Yeah. <laughs> Um, how funny that that wasn't a hit yeah. on the rocket label. Yeah, it's it's quite a tedious song. Uh, it's about about four and a half minutes long. Uh, but Neil says, and the Barbara under discussion is Barbara Woodhouse. Really? Um, yeah, it's it's all a tale about how Randy's misbehaving dog is uh, put into check uh, with the help of the guidance of Barbara Woodhouse. Of course, Barbara Woodhouse, very big deal at that time, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, all, all over the telly, yeah. This is also around about the time of uh, Who Shot JR, isn't it, Dallas? Right, yes. Yeah, yeah. it would have been, yeah. Those were the big TV things. <laughs> um, Alice Cooper, as well, who makes his uh, second appearance in the mag because there's there's uh, the, the lyrics for schools out which is um what's that it's all like a, like a listener a reader's request a, yeah reader's request reader's request yeah and uh no actually he's the third time in the issue because i, I think it is it in bits where where there's a picture of him oh yes there is yes yeah he was back in london he obviously been playing he says Showing all the wear and tear of his 34 years. <laughs> 34? <laughs> you know, they're probably members of, I don't know, what, take that, who, are, you know, who would like to be 34 again. Yeah, yeah. So it, it did strike me as odd that uh, Alice Cooper keeps popping up in this edition <laughs> of the Mac. But then Neil makes perfect sense of it with the review. Adam Ant only had to dress up as Alice Cooper on his Prince Charming video and suddenly Alice had an audience again. Oh, well, okay. But boring singles like this recorded live should ensure that he doesn't keep it very long. Would you play golf with this man? <laughs> he doesn't mention the fact Seven and Seven Years is a love song, isn't it? It's, it yeah, is. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an Arthur Lee love song, isn't it? Yes, yeah. it is. Uh, which, ten years later or so, had it been something in Mojo... That would have been you know, definitely something that would have been discussed, but it just yeah. just wasn't relevant for the Smash Hits no, audience. It wasn't. No, no, no. no. <laughs> At the bottom of the page, there's a review of the new Marty Wilde single, um, <laughs> 20 years after he's last been in the charts, and he's obviously Kim's dad. But I like the way Neil deals with it, because I was thinking actually like in the, in the Inkies, in the NMA or Melody Maker, this would have just been dismissed out of hand. But he actually is quite fond of it, and he, he gives it quite a nice review. He says it's... Um, put together over a, a muted electronic background over which Marty croons an old Roy Orbison song with conviction, and it's dead nice. And I just thought, oh, that's... You see, this is probably, this is probably the period of time when Neil was working on his demos, and so he's starting to look at the world in a very different way. Oh, that could be you know, it, yeah. I'm making some of these records myself. I'd like, I'd like the world to be pleasant about them when they come out and say, I'm going to deposit this in the Karma Bank. And hope it'll come back. <laughs> well, it did. He, it his did. gamble paid off, didn't it? It did. Even though we all laughed. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let's skip over to the uh, albums reviews now. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, yeah, so Spandau Ballet get an absolute drubbing by Red Star. Now, do you know, I was thinking about this last night when I was looking at this. Do you know who Red Star was? No, but it's a name that I've seen often in the early editions of Smashes. Well, often in earlier, it's Ian Craner. Right. <laughs> and, and the reason it was Red Star, albeit with two R's, yeah. is that... Stuff used to be sent to him in Scotland right. via Red Star. Now, younger listeners may not be aware that there was a period of time before the fax and you know, all, this, all this kind of communication <laughs> when the only way you could get something quickly from one part of the UK to another was to wrap it all up and take it down to King's Cross Station and go to the Red Star office where you would pay the money cash, folding money, and uh, and they would put it on a train and it would go to Peterborough or Glasgow or wherever and it would go to the Red Star office there and there had to be picked up by by somebody who was told that there was a Red Star parcel waiting for them. So everything on Smash Hits was sent back and forth. To the printers uh, and Repro, it was sent by Red Star because it was the only way to get anything anywhere. And so that's why Ian Cranor's reviews were always, uh, were always flagged as Red Star. Mystery solved. So you, There you go, mystery solved. So there's a couple of album here, albums here, David, that, that you've reviewed. Um, I've done Haircut 100. Yeah, you've given 8.5 out of 10 to that. Did you stand by that rating there? No, I haven't listened to it in years. <laughs> and uh, But I did, I, Mark and I had a definite soft spot for uh, Haircut 100. And I think round about this time when this album came out, and he was, he was, you know, he was, he was very hot stuff, wasn't he? Yeah. He was, he was the new kind of scream idol. And um, we went to see them playing at what used to be called the Hammersmith Odeon. And we were the only men in the place. And we were certainly the only men in our 30s in the place. <laughs> so surrounded by 12, 30-year-old girls, all going mad. And uh, and haircut one hundred uh, on stage, um, wearing I seem to remember a yellow. He was wearing a yellow life belt round his uh, round his neck as he sang. It some kind of yachting motif that he adopted, <laughs> and uh, and these girls were just screaming and screaming, screaming, and we were just applauding politely and because we we really liked them, you know. We looked like people who turned up to pick up our teenage daughters, but we didn't have any teenage daughters there ourselves. But uh, I, I liked Haircut 100, and I thought, uh, you know, I think it's it's kind of a bit sad that, you know, like I said, I was saying earlier that uh, if you've had a hit record for the rest of your life, there'll be somebody who'll pay to hear it. That hasn't really applied with them, has it? No. No. no, I don't know if they still Maybe do. Maybe they the... haven't worked it out. I don't know. Yeah, one of the members I know went off to work in, in on the uh, business side of uh, the industry. Um, yeah, right. And, and obviously Nick Haywood carried on solo act and then got in more into the songwriting side of things. Yeah. I think he's st- still out there doing stuff. Mark, Mark was telling me when Mark's book came out uh, a few years ago and he was doing some literary festival and... Uh, down in Surrey, I think, or something. And he said to me, he said, when you st- when people queue up to have their books signed, always watch out for the person at the end of the line because 
they're either they've either got a grudge or they want to have a long conversation with you. That's why they're at the end of the line. And so he's looking nervously at this guy at the end of the line. And the guy came up and said, oh, can you sign this? Yeah, he signed it. He said, uh, some mark-making conversation. He says, you know, do you, I was talking about Smash Hits. Do you, do you used to read Smash Hits? He said, yeah, I used to, I used to be in it occasionally. <laughs> and Mark looked at him and thought, really? He said, yeah, Nick Hayward. <laughs> <laughs> And they had a very nice chat, and he was apparently oh. a very nice chap. So, fair enough. So, is album review in a more pleasurable experience and process? Yeah. Oh, it's easier. It, it, it was easy. Yeah, Smash Hits review is relatively easy because you don't have to write a huge amount. Um, so, you know, listen, the point about album reviews, go and read album reviews. Most of them are not about music at all. They're <laughs> They're about news. Hmm. They're about, oh, it's the third album of the hard-geeking four-piece, you know, integrating their new girl singer. Or, <laughs> that's taken care of half of it. <laughs> and then the bit at the end, a bit of opinion. And, and the, 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 the difficult bit is the bit in the middle where you have to give some idea of what it sounds like. You know, it can be quite hard to do. But it's, it's not as demanding as... Uh, as reviewing the singles, because you don't have to do all of them. Uh, and also, also, you've chosen to review things. You said, "Oh, I'll do that," because you, you've got something to say about it. Yeah. Um, whether whether favourable or uh, or unfavourable, rather than being handed a, a lucky yes, bag of forty uh, fives. Oh God! Because first of all, you've got to go and find the ones that are worth writing about. It can be hard work. We get to page thirty-four. Uh, badgers not dead and still only 20p. Yeah, the March top 10 of badgers. We, we were talking before about the free badge on this issue and you were saying, David, how uh, even a little thing like a badge brought a lot of pleasure back in the day. It brought so much pleasure. There was a top 10 devoted to it. And, uh, I mean, it's top 10 of a certain kind of music. I, get. I mean, it's mostly bands from the independent charts, although no Foster and Allen in the badge top 10, strangely. Well, I think it's better badges, isn't it, with the company? Yeah. Better badges, yeah. New Order at number one, <laughs> Theatre of Hate at number two, two different badges from the Jam at number three, and then we've also got Anti Nowhere League, Joy Division, and so on. Yeah. But I just thought that was um, quite an interesting idea. I don't remember the badge top ten. I mean, I did have this issue, but was that? Do you remember that going for quite a while? The top ten of badges, or I think it was just something the advertiser did, wasn't it? Really? Yes, I think it was. But I mean, I don't did, think it had anything to do with us. Did it last long? I don't. I've no idea at all. No, they, they, they just placed their ad. <laughs> What I'm intrigued by is the, is the ad underneath it for a company called Queenacre, who's selling you everything from a ten-pole Tudor, you know, T-shirt or whatever it is, to a main book about the police and so forth. But they are they are situated this company down the road that I live on. <laughs> no way. Yes. Oh wow. I, I was saying to my wife last night, I'm going to go and look, have a look at number 15. Yeah. Yeah. See, see if there's a blue plaque. <laughs> They're probably not there anymore. See if you can still get that Shaking Stevens sweatshirt. <laughs> oh, yeah. New sounds, new styles as well. Yeah. You, that's that's another thing that you, you mentioned as well. Yeah. Uh, new sounds, new styles. There's a kind of what we used to call a house ad for, for new sounds, new styles because it wasn't paid for. Uh, because that was, uh, that was the time when the publisher, EMAP, was was trying to use this kind of little wedge it got into the teenage market to launch something else, you know, to kind of broaden itself out. 
and uh, and they launched this magazine called New Sounds, New Styles, which was kind of new romantic magazine. So it was the idea that that it was music and fashion, and uh, it was there was a great kind of rivalry between Smashes and New Sounds, New Styles. It is like I always say about the BBC. Um, you know, all the enemies of the BBC work for the BBC. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's just the way things are in media organisations. People are very competitive. And, uh, you know, I don't know, it lasted a couple of years and, uh, and it, it never completely, uh, you know, it never really got its place. Hmm. So it always... There was always some tension in the, in the magazine, you know. Oh, we got a half page for new sounds, new styles. Uh, why can't we have that as editorial? Of one of them? Uh, we, we were very sympathetic. Well, was it reciprocal? Did that smash it's get a, a half page and <laughs> yeah, but it wouldn't have done you much good because you know they would only put out thirty thousand copies or something like yeah, that. Whereas yeah. you know, smash it at this time, I don't know, three hundred thousand or something like that. You know. And, and the thing about Smash Hits was it was growing and growing and growing steadily. Um, you know, every time you promoted it, you sampled a load of new people and you retained an awful lot of those new people. So it was really effective promotion. Um, and it was getting into more outlets all the time, you know, and it was sale or return to the news agents, which was made it a lot more attractive you know that was the thing that really kind of upset the market yeah um and so made life really hard for a kind of dc thompson's and ipcs of this world that this kind of interloper was was doing as well as it was and do you think uh i mean we know that it had an impact on on pop music and how we saw pop stars at the time but did did you recognise that happening at the time? Did did you notice that happening? Um, yeah, I think so. Yes, I, I mean, I think we always wanted to be a bit more recognised. You know, that's why I was talking about the you know they made a TV film about about this because that was one of the first recognition, first pieces of recognition in the wider media that hmm. this thing was a bit of a phenomenon, and it became a bigger phenomenon. You know, in a few few years' time, and then everybody wrote about it. You know, the, the, this magazine's just going crazy; it's bucking the market. You know what I mean? It's it's growing, you know, in uh, really really fast. And uh, but I would say, you know, of all the magazines I've been involved in, it's the most influential. Still, yeah, there's a sense of humour that a whole load of people have got. There's a whole way of looking at the world. You know, it's it's influences in everything from you know. I mean, not so much magazines, but you know, social media, and um, it changed the way that a whole lot of things were done. Um, and you know, like you you were saying earlier, this is the kind of thing that you would have found in the color supplement. Well, the color supplements eventually pinched everything out of Smashes, <laughs> apart from the staples. <laughs> they took everything. I don't mind it all. They took everything and just made it more adult. And that's that's fine, you know. Larceny is the greatest f- form of flattery in publishing terms. 
We'll skip quickly over uh, that colour photo there of the Nolans with the, the lyrics to Don't Love Me Too Hard. There you go, Don't Love Me Too Hard. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a, a tune to remember. <laughs> and uh, we, we'll have a little look at um, RSVP, shall we? So um, was was this uh, RSVP, was this something that ran from the very early days of, of the magazine? I think so, yeah, yeah, it did. It was there, it was there right from the beginning. And, uh, you know, people used to just, it was just really simple. We'd never messed with it. You know, people just wrote in, said, you know, I would like to find people who are into, you know, Haircut 100 or or whatever. I dislike cruelty to animals, homework and heavies. Yeah. <laughs> to boys, 13 to 15. Please write to me. That's the amazing thing. There's the tender dress. But we, we never had any problem with it at all. Must have been a more innocent world, I think. Jonathan Coleman, who's got the last letter in RSVP, I think is maybe uh, using it for different purposes. Oh, my God. I think, yeah, there's a bit of uh, some kind of uh, dating agency stuff going on here, isn't there? Yeah. He says, I'm 21 years of age, of slim build, 5 feet 10, have black hair and brown eyes, and I'm single and male. (laughs) I have many hobbies, including cycling, discos, photography, music, and meeting (laughs) new people. I enjoy most chart groups, but I don't like punk or heavy metal. I would especially like females from the northwest. Don't repeat his no, name. No, I'm not going to give it a because he's probably still there. Yeah, <laughs> he quite possibly. Yeah, is. I'll, I'll get on the tram to uh, to Presswich and go. And I used to live in Presswich. <laughs> yeah, I'd have been tempted to go around his house and uh, <laughs> see what he's up to. Yeah. But um, 21 seems a little bit old to be maybe writing into Smash It at that it point. It does. Yeah. <laughs> However, the first uh, advert. This is one I think I would have written to out of uh, RSVP in Happy. this week, and I think you would as yeah. well. Site says David Bowie is the interest. Black is the colour. A bizarre imagination is the quality. Oh, it's quite mysterious, that, isn't yeah. it? Photos, if possible. Write to me and I'll tell you more. Nadia. Mm. And she lives in Blackheath, so she's probably really well off. Yeah. <laughs> <That's what we're laughs> it's a big, nice house. And actually, while we're on RSVP, there's, there's one thing I need to ask you about, David. On, um, on, sort of on the third column near the top, uh, the second one down... I'm presuming this is a typo. Uh, I hope it's a typo. It says greasing Olivia Newton-John fan. Um, is that a sport? Is it an activity? Greasing <laughs> Olivia Newton-John? I think it's probably one of the Covering them. her in lard? Well, <laughs> this is somebody writing from Vienna in Austria. Oh, this, so this could explain it. English will not be the first language. And it's possible that that's just their attempt to turn, you know, grease loving into a kind of... <laughs> Adjective. <laughs> let's let's put the kindest construction possibly on this. Thirty-seven years later, shall we, Gavin? Uh, we get to more readers' contributions with the letters. And, and David, you were talking about how um, readers used to you know, write letters by the sackful, and some of these are, are actually um, quite long. Um, any any here kind of stand out to God, you? That is a ridiculously long one. This it is for three columns. Through, <laughs> I think Mark Allen would have been uh, editing this at this hmm. point, so he was probably he's probably pushed for time. Oh, that'll do. <laughs> yeah, stick stick all of that one in. <laughs> stick all of that one in. It hadn't quite got to the levels of zaniness that it got to later on with, uh, you know, Mark and Tom Hibbert, where Black Type, who was the, you know, the, the, the voice of the magazine that responded at the end of the letter, became an entire personality 
with a complete world view. You know, uh, this was relatively straightforward. You know, the way I ran it, it was kind of different from the way it had been with the previous editor, Ian Craner, but it wasn't as zany as it got when Mark <laughs> took over, you know. And uh, and that's fair enough, you know. The magazine reflected the editor. Um, you know, this was, you know, this was in transition, I think, possibly. But letters, hugely important part of the magazine, and, you know, people used to correspond in staggering numbers and they used to get a response when you send them a postcard back <laughs> you know there's a linda duff who's the editorial secretary i'd spend hours doing this you know just responding to people and people would ring up all the time terms of the other thing, interesting thing about smash hits is occasionally you'd be working at the weekend you know you have stuff to do and you'd go in He'd be there at four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon and the phone would ring in the office and so you'd just pick it up and a voice of a of like 13-year-old would go, oh, yeah, hi, okay, um, boy George, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> they would never say, oh, you're there. <laughs> How odd it is that you're, you're there. They would just assume the Smash Hits was there at all hours of the day and night to kind of answer their questions. And the questions were generally, is it true that Santa is going to die? Because that was always a favourite. Whoever was the big hit act of the time, whether it was Adamant or Boy George or Simon Le Bon or whatever, unkind voices in the playground would say, he's going to die, I've heard. <laughs> I've heard he's going to die. And they think, how can I possibly check this? I know our ring smashes. And we'd all go, no, he's not going to die. Not ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were, the, you were the news service that could be trusted, weren't you? Really, it's it? weird. You really were. Yeah, and there's nothing else. There's nothing else. That's the thing we can't imagine nowadays, you know, because there's no... There's a wonderful quote I read recently from Tom White. He said that... Uh, do you remember in the days when we used to wonder about things? I missed the wondering. <laughs> That's a really good point. We don't wonder about anything anymore. We can satisfy our curiosity about absolutely anything instantly. Yeah. Can I just ask about the, um, the, the, the Smash It's poll? When, when did that first start? Did that start around about this time? Um, I, I think I started it. Yeah. So it would have started before this, I think. And uh, we, you know, and I, I kind of wanted to seize on it as a big opportunity to do something quite big. And so we, you know, we came up with these, I don't know, 20 categories or whatever. And we, we had a form in the magazine that you filled in. And then you cut it out of the magazine. You put it in an envelope and sent it to us. And uh, we... <laughs> We got 40,000 responses. <laughs> and we counted every single one of them. Every single one. We went down every form. We had, we didn't have, you know, clearly we didn't have computers. We, we got these big boards and, and with paper on them 
and we we would draw lines on them. <laughs> we go hey, most fancy ball, whatever, and whatever the category, best single, and then we would start, you know, lines of Simon LeBond, Claire Grogan, whatever, and we would mark religiously every individual vote for every person, and it, it took like took weeks. Yeah. <laughs> of kind of extra work which people didn't get paid for and just but I there's no word of a lie our kind of devotion to it was so great <laughs> that's what we did because we didn't know any better we we were really uncynical actually and I think that that was because we were all kind of new to it and uh, and in the case of most people on the magazine it was their first taste of success and that was a very precious thing. You know, they all, everybody appreciated it. And this doesn't happen every day. And for many people, it never happened again. I think it says something about the the regard in which you, you held the, the readers as well, yes. that, that, that <laughs> well, you actually it. so dedicated to, to counting every one of these 40,000 responses. Yeah, well, the, the, the argument that all, all was won in, in the office was, well, you've got to do that for the readers, whatever it is. For the readers, I've still said that. You know, nobody would ever talk about, oh, we're going to do that because it improves the commercial performance of the magazine or anything like that. <laughs> nobody would ever say that. In fact, we used to regularly um, reject ads because we felt they were not right for the readers to the great chagrin of the ad director. <laughs> but, but, you know, he kind of couldn't argue, really, because it was just growing and growing. And kind of the advertisers, in an odd way, kind of came to respect that. They thought, God, these people are so finger on the pulse that they've turned away our, you know, yeah. our creative for this thing or that. I mean, when I look back on it, a lot of things we did were mad, but, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's just the way it is. You know, you, you, you're finding out. But but when the magazine finally closed, and you know they had uh, whenever it was, I can't remember they had a drink in a pub, and uh, I said a few words, and what I said was most people go through their lives and never get to do something that's both big and clever. You did that, you know, yeah. mm. and uh, and uh, it's a terrific thing. Well, we're coming to the, the the closing pages of the magazine now, and we get out and about with Barry. As, so what's, what's all that about then? That was a, a stupid idea that Mark and I had. We're always thinking, oh, can I have a gossip? Let's have a gossip column. You've got to have a gossip column somewhere. But then you've got the problem that, you know, you're fortnightly and uh, you're long lead times. And by the time you got there, you know, the story's been all over the papers, all the pictures have appeared of the, in the, you know, Daily Mirror whatever the Daily Mirror's pop column was called, I can't remember. And so we we said, uh, we thought, well, let's do a tongue-in-cheek gossip column. <laughs> and so that was out and about with Barry, which was supposedly a guy called Barry always turned up at every glamorous party slightly too late and said the wrong thing to the wrong person <laughs> and so forth. And it was kind of Mark Allen alter ego. <laughs> and we desperately tried to get this thing going. It lasted about a year. and uh, No, it didn't work at all, you know, so... Oh, the only thing I learned from that is never do tongue-in-cheek gossip. It's not a good idea at all. You know, there were the odd, there was the odd thing in Smash Hits that we tried and didn't work, and that was one of them. You know, and if you look at it, any any copy of Smash Hits through the years, you'll find something that that they were trying 
and then they didn't work. But that's kind of part of the part of the deal, you know. That's it. You've got to be trying. So well, I think that pretty much brings us to the end of the magazine. Any closing thoughts from you, David? Well, I, I'm looking here at the um, at the cover of the one after, actually, because I've got my bound volumes here. Yeah. And so the cover of the March 18th to 31st is an even better cover, actually. Shall I tell you what it is? Or do you know? No, I no, don't know. I no. can't remember. It's Altered Images holding up the Smash Hits logo. <laughs> okay, yeah. Proud moment, proud moment. And Claire Grogan, only the other day, posted on social media a picture of her and Toya taken just quite recently. I think they've been touring together or something like that. And I said, ladies, you look fabulous. That could go on the cover of Smash Hits tomorrow, and it could. Um, so if Smash Hits was around today, how do you think it would cover current pop stars? I'll tell you one thing <laughs> that, that uh, I've been thinking is that, uh, you know, Mark Ellen and Barry McElhenney and myself have a WhatsApp group. You know, we're all former editors of Smash Hits where we kind of exchange confidences and and comments on the passing cultural scene. And, uh, and one of the things we often talk about is we often say to ourselves, what would you do with this if Smash Hits were still going today? And the most recent example of a, a topic in this category, was when Sam Smith announced that henceforth he wished to be referred to as they because there's some kind of gender issue or whatever. Now, my serious point was, how would you do that in Smash Hits nowadays? Because Smash Hits was always based on the idea that you took a kind of light approach to absolutely everything. And you just can't do that anymore. You're simply not allowed to do it anymore. And so the space in which Smash It's operated has got barbed wire around it nowadays. Because people nowadays want to want to catch people out. <laughs> That's what they want to do. They want to catch people on the wrong side of an argument. And the whole point about Smash It's was you didn't go on either side of the argument, really. You just kind of threw it up in the air. And that was the fun. You know, the, the pop music touched on all kinds of things, but you didn't linger on anything particularly. And there was just a playful but kind of forgiving approach to everything. And uh, I don't think you can do that anymore. Uh, I, think that's, I think that's sad. So, you know, that's the thought I'll leave you with. Well, thank you so much for your time today and, and, and talking to, to Gavin and myself. If people want to keep up to date with uh, what you're up to and, and things like that, uh, what's the best way they can do that? Oh, I, well, I'm, I'm David Hepworth on Twitter and, uh, you know, davidhepworth.com online, I suppose. Yeah, it's quite easy. And any more books in, in the pipeline that you can talk about? Yes, I'll be I'm hammering away at... Uh, <laughs> at a book called Overpaid, Oversexed and Over There. <laughs> and I'll leave you to decide what that's about. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and uh, thanks, Gavin. Always a pleasure, never a chore. 
And uh, thanks to you for listening. Come and say hello to us at Giddy Pop Pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, and at giddypoppod.home.blog where you'll also find the links to the edition of Smash It that we've been looking at, along with those Spotify and YouTube playlists for that extra layer of experience. And we hope you can join us next time on the Giddy Carousel of Pop. Thank you.